We made this. Welcome back, everyone, and Happy New Year to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and television and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I am your host, Tony Black. And I'm the other guy, Sean Wilson. (laughs) The the other guy. I I think it's better framed as the guy who knows what he's talking about as opposed to the other guy who doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, And in this episode, uh, we're going to look back at uh, our best scores of 2021, and ahead to what we're most anticipating in 2022, discussing the music of composers, including Hans Zimmer, Alexandre Desplat, Michael Giacchino, and many more. And this is going to be the uh, the first of t- a two-part episode. Um, so in this one, we're going to count down from 10 to 6, and then in the uh, the next one, we're going to do 5 to 1, to, uh, because we, we're going to have a fair bit to talk about. So, so yeah, Happy New Year, Sean. How are you doing? And uh, are you excited that we're in 2022? Happy New Year, mate. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, as much as anything, I'm relieved that it's not 2021 anymore, because <laughs> what a year. <laughs> I know. Although, from our point of view, there was a lot to celebrate, wasn't there? Because cinemas reopened again, the films started to be released again, soundtracks started to be released again. Which So, so on, on balance, think about it, 2021 was actually very positive. I mean, given we didn't have any movies from, well, theatrically released movies between January and, what, mid-May, and then all of a sudden the floodgates opened. <laughs> it's just surreal to think that we were ever in that situation, wasn't it? The fact that cinemas weren't open and there weren't any films, and therefore there weren't any soundtracks to talk about necessarily really peculiar but yeah as a result of that we have we've had a flurry of the things in 2021 particularly i have to say from about september onwards i think it's been i don't know if you felt that it felt like everything was kind of condensed into like the last three months of the year yeah yeah when, when i look at the list we've got absolutely i think the majority of them are in are from yeah september onwards for sure i think i, I can't remember the list we had last year if i'm honest but i feel like this one is a bit richer this time round, I I think there's more variety. I think there's more to talk about. I think you know because 2020 was such a sparse year, and we, you know we did a lot of episodes on this podcast where we look back at stuff, which was great. And I, I I think we did some great episodes, and I really like those. But we've definitely had a bit more to talk about this year in the episodes we've done. And and you know hopefully in and we'll talk about this later, I guess. But hopefully in 2022 we'll be around a little bit more regularly, month by month, because cinemas are going to stay open. You know we're going to have these films out, even though. Things are a little bit up in the air in terms of uh, this Omicron that's spreading around everywhere. Uh, <laughs> it has to be said like that, doesn't it? Well I, well, I made, well, I made the point when this first came out. I said, why would you give it a scary name like that? Why would you call it like an evil transformer? Why don't you call it something like <laughs> Beryl? Like, <laughs> call it very Beryl. No one's going to be scared of Beryl, are they? You know? So Yeah. It's, it's not It's not what I call it. I call it the Omnicore variant from Robocop. That's what, <laughs> what I've taken to calling it. So, Omni, omni consumer products. <laughs> I like that. It's, it's, Omnicore. Yeah. I'll buy that for a dollar. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen with all of this. But, yeah, fingers crossed, as you say. We're going to have movies. It seems like we're going to have movies to talk about in 2022, doesn't it? So I, I, th- I think 
we'll hopefully have a fair bit to chew on next year. This year, this year. What am I talking about? This year. <laughs> I know. I'm still in that phase. It's like, oh yeah, it's this year now, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's 2022. We're in this year territory. Yeah. 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 See, why don't we crack in? Why don't we crack in then? We'll talk a bit more about 2022 uh, at the end of part two, I guess. But um, why don't we crack in then? So uh, we'll start with your number 10 then, Sean. Um, So um, why don't you tell us what you've gone for and uh, what it is about this score that you love so much? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say, so basic, my basic rule for selecting any film or film score is that it had to have been released in the UK because we're recording in the UK uh, between 1st of January 2021 and 31st of December 2021. That's that's my basic rule. So any of these scores were released in the UK during that period. I think that makes them fair game for inclusion. So my so my number ten is the Green Knight, um, composed by Daniel Hart for the David Lowry film of the same name. Which is I don't know if you ended up seeing this film in the end, but this was a really remarkable um, piece of work that looked like it wasn't actually going to get a theatrical release in the UK. It was supposed to have come out at the beginning of August twenty twenty one. Then it disappeared off the film schedule. And I and many other journalists were like, seriously, what the hell? You know, we've been looking forward to this yeah. for such a long time. Um, and then it did finally come out. And then I, I, I interviewed Daniel Hart about this and he was wonderful. And it was it was a slightly odd experience whereby, you know, I, I'd listened to the score in advance of doing the interview, assuming I was going to go and see the film. And then they pulled the movie. So I was like, oh, right, OK, so I've got a score that I've listened to, but I actually don't know the context of the film. I then caught up with the film subsequently about a month after when it did finally get released. But wow, what a... Um, so this is a remarkable inversion of the Arthurian legend in which Dev Patel plays uh, Sir Gawain, who is uh, tasked or challenged by the eponymous uh, Green Knight, uh, uh, voiced by Ralph Ineson, to basically trek across country and confront the Green Knight in a in a in a duel. And it's it's a really really interesting mystical surrealist uh, fantasy drama and. Daniel Hart's score is really quite quite amazing. The, the way that it it's there are sort of motifs and themes in it. There's a lot of, sort of there's a lot of song in the score actually. There's a lot of vocal work, and Daniel Hart explained to me how he went back to like archaic English and and dug out you know terminology that we don't use anymore, and you know inserted it melodically into his score. There's lots of very very interesting use of. So pre, I was going to say Renaissance instruments, but pre-Renaissance instruments, very speciality, speciality instrumentation that just gives it this very intoxicatingly oldie-worldy atmosphere. Again, it's not an accessible score. It's dark, it's moody, it's toiling, but I think it's very, very engrossing. And wow, it works like gangbusters in the movie because in the film, this isn't necessarily a narrative, logic-driven film. It's a film of, you know, it's it's a tapestry of emotions. It's a film of impressions and suggestions and the way that the film and the score hand in hand builds the final montage sequence involving Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and it's all about you know does one embrace one's own destiny if one can see one's own future how would that change one's behavior the the the, the moment of realization in the music that's achieved by Daniel Hart is, is brilliant I think this is a really striking piece of work yeah, it's funny because you talk through... Because actually, people are going to be sick of us talking about this one because we've talked about it about three times on the podcast. Yeah. The first time was when you described about how you'd seen it without the context and we, we I'd only listened to the one track on Spotify. And then the second time was when we... I think we'd both seen it by that point and then we talked about the album in full. 
Um, so yeah, we've kind of we've kind of given the the, the green knot. We sort of tracked the history of it when it's gone from being this film that as as you know as a missed its cinematic schedule and all this kind of thing. Um, and I I definitely I, I for me I think I might have said this before, but I like the score more than I do the film. Really, I I, I appreciate that the film is visually beautiful. It looks great. I think the actors in it are superb, but I it's just not quite my kind of thing, really. And and it's that it's a bit too abstract for me and a little bit too much something you've got to decrypt. And I, I am absolutely understand, however, why people would love this film and also why they love the score. Cause it is, it is really quite strange. It is really, it's both melodic and moody and brooding. And it brings together a lot of the things that Daniel Hart has done in previous scores. You know, it reminded me at points of, the, of, of a ghost story and some of the stuff he did in that. And it, it it is really good. I do agree with you there. But um, I don't know if I'm going to watch the film again, if I'm honest. I don't know. And, and if, unless, unless I'm doing an, a podcast where I've got to unpick it or whatever, I yeah, it wasn't really for me. It hasn't made my top 10 list or anything. You could literally devote that podcast to like six months. You could do six months <laughs> on a podcast picking this film part. There is, there's so much allegory uh, and, and mysticism in it. I, I'm, I'm really glad that you that you drew the comparison with a ghost story, uh, which was the one one of the other films that Daniel Hart collaborated with David Larry on. They are a really really interesting. Uh, union they've worked on ain't them body saints which has got a bluegrass sound they worked on pete's dragon which is a lush symphonic score in the manner of jerry goldsmith or john williams or james horner and now they've done this which is completely different again they are so versatile in their you know director composer partnership and i can't wait to hear what they're going to come up with again Mm. in the future completely yeah i I agree you know uh, uh, because they have done i i much prefer to ghost story as a film really um but yeah this this is one of his most fascinating scores, if not his most fascinating. So yeah, it's it's well worth entry on a list like this, I would say, definitely. So my for my number ten, I'm cheating a bit. I'm cheating a couple of times in this in this episode, if I'm honest. <laughs> because I feel like, you know, we we have we obviously talk a lot about primarily about uh orchestral music, what to some would be deemed, you know, classical music, except you know, etc. But Film music isn't always necessarily involving just this kind of thing. So I've got, and, I, and equally, we are sort of a film and TV, TV sometimes when we fancy it, when there's something worth covering. And so I've sort of gone for a, a real hybrid with my number 10. Maybe a film sometimes, maybe a TV show, others. It's sort of in the middle. It's The Beatles Get Back, the documentary from Peter Jackson, who obviously made The Lord of the Rings and various other uh, different things, in which he covers the the making of the last album the Beatles ever did in 1969 for the 1970 album Let It Be and draws a lot from a documentary film in 1970 which was called Let It Be which sort of captured that era and picks out out of tons and tons of hours of footage the recording sessions of when they put this album together and it, it and it, this this came out on Apple and it had been you know painstakingly done rendered into modern color you know into into modern like hd the sound had been you know turned up to the max in terms of picking up the the the, the actual speech of john and paul and and and, all, and you know george and ringo and all these people and it, it, it i mean it's long it's like probably about nine or ten hours long altogether which and and it's mainly just watching 
four blokes sitting around a warehouse, you know, strumming a guitar, playing songs. But it's fan, it's fantastic, you know. And and I don't know if people, many people listening to this are big fans of the Beatles. I I've I've I kind of always have been, but I've never really realised it until the age I'm at now. In a way, I feel like the older I get, the more I go. Actually, I fucking love the Beatles, and I always have. And I've never, it's never really clicked with me. But watching this was re- amazing because it, it it's. It's a, it's got a soundtrack which everybody knows. You know, it's got a lot of the, the, you know, the great because for that last album, the Beatles put together some of their most fantastic work. You know, and particularly the, 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 the moment that stands out for me in this whole thing is when you actually see Paul McCartney devise "Get Back," which is one of their most, you know, famous songs. Get back to where you once belong. You actually see him create that song from nothing. Literally sitting there going, dun, 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 dun. and it's amazing. It's like 10, 15 minutes where you just see him doing that. And I think for that reason, this has to be on a top 10 list for me in terms of, if not scores, then soundtracks and actual musical accompaniment to a, to a TV show slash movie. Because it's not just listening to songs that the Beatles we know and love. It's watching these songs in construction it's watching these these guys, you know, riff off each other and also play so, other kinds of songs, you know, 50s rock and roll standards and all this kind of thing, just break into stuff. It is, it's just really compelling. And, it, and it, obviously it tells a story as it goes on and it ends with this great rooftop concert in London where they play this album for the first time. But I, I love this and I, I, I had to put it on Sean and I know it's cheating a little bit, but I I, I just think this is marvellous. And I think the mar- the, 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 the marrying of, of these this great music and the way they put these visuals together and, br- and creating a form to a very loose sort of pro- tracking progress documentary of this album and the end of the Beatles, because that's what it's about. It's the end of the 60s, it's the end of the Beatles it's a really crucial moment in cultural history. I just, I loved it. And I, I thought I had to put it on here. Did you see it at all? Yeah, I saw, I saw bits and pieces of this. It's on Disney plus. And it is Disney yeah, plus I, actually. Yeah. So I'm getting mixed up. You're right. It's on Disney plus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw bits and pieces of it. Cause I really like what Peter Jackson did with, um, they should not grow old. His uh, world war one documentary from a few years ago, which was extraordinary. And I was very interested to see the, you know, the colorization, the rest and the restoration of this, Beatles footage and I don't think it's cheating because I want for you to select this because I think the Beatles are embedded in cinema in terms of they brought pop music soundtracks into cinema during the 1960s you think of help you think of you know the yellow submarine and things so I, I, I think it's a perfectly valid choice but I know what you mean like when you watch this and you hear the crystal clear restoration of the sound which helps you appreciate the nuances in the music a lot more and then you juxtapose that music against a lot of the stuff that we've got today. You think, wow, you know, these guys were absolutely incredible. Just the the, the rhythmic intuition and just, the, you know, the quirkiness and, you know, the unexpected time signature changes and the, the meter changes and, you know, the very often quite eccentric harmonisation of the vocals. Everything in the modern day came from this. And I think Peter Jackson's documentary just reinforces that. I mean, well, here's a question for you. What is your favourite Beatles song? Because I know what mine is. I don't know anymore because after this, it might be Get Back because I, <laughs> I actually <laughs> think that song is brilliant. No, I, th- I think, and the one I always remember singing to my to my heart's content, I remember vividly one particular trip I, I, I went on. I think it was for my best mate's 
thirtieth birthday, and we all decamped to Liverpool for this weekend, and we spent the best night on Matthew Street. Not in the cavern. We did go to the cavern quite a bit, which is great still. But we, there was this bar called Lennon's, appropriately bar, which is on Matthew Street, and we had the best night. About ten of us just dancing away to this stuff. 60s, 50s rock and roll. It was amazing. And we finished, and, and it's a song I've loved ever since I was a kid, with a huge rendition of Hey Jude. <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. That's my that's my favourite Beatles song. What's yours? Mine would be Here, There and Everywhere, um, which I can't remember if, nice. if that was featured in this documentary or not. It's from Revolver. I don't think it was, actually. But yeah, it's a good it's, one. It's a it's a beautiful song. It's it's just really tender and and really lovely. I think it might actually be Paul McCartney's favourite as well, from what from what I remember. But um, no, Hey Jude. I, I remember being on travelling around America. I did Track America back in two thousand and eight. And as we approached, in in we were all group of us in a minibus. And as we approached the Badlands in South Dakota, we had Hey Jude fired up on the on the, yes. on, the, on, the on the on the stereo. So yeah. It, it does it does get it gets everywhere that one yeah it's really anthemic i think this is a really good choice of soundtrack actually i, I agree with your inclusion of this i just encourage anyone to check this out i mean it's a commitment because it is a lot you know the each each episode three episodes and they're like about two and a half hours long a lot of them but it's so enthralling you know it really is i mean it may, maybe it's less enthralling if you're not a fan of the music but just watching these guys bounce off each other seeing their personalities come through i'm currently reading a book about the beatles as well now actually that i've that I bought recently and it's sort of reinforcing a lot of what you see in this documentary and just seeing this music come together you know and they play all older songs they did on the some of their earlier albums and things it's fabulous and it really is a musical treat so yeah i'm, I'm glad you approve of this choice because i was a bit like Oh, I don't know, but I don't know if I should get it. <laughs> but then I'm I'm gonna pull another one like this out of the bag later. So like you know, this this is this is the first one of uh, me me cheating slightly. But I I was debating with myself on this podcast whether to include West Side Story. You know, the arrangement of of the Leonard Bernstein Stephen Sondheim musical as as has been done for the new Steven Spielberg remake. I was debating whether to put that in there, but then ultimately it is it is the same score. It is it is Leonard Bernstein's score from the 1961 movie, which was then extra, which in turn was extrapolated from the 1957 Broadway show. I mean, I interviewed David Newman, the arranger of the Spielberg movie, about this, and David Newman said, "You don't mess with it. You know, it, this is this soundtrack is in the canon of classical music. You do not change a note of it in terms of the underscore." That well, on that basis, then I won't include. West Side Story because it is just essentially the sixty-one score, but I, I had a real, I had a real fight with myself about that. So just, <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. I get that though. I, I, th- I think a lot of people would would include that on a musical list of this year because I know that even though it didn't do very well at the box office, it's it's been very well loved by a lot of people that remake. So uh, I haven't seen it yet, um, but yeah. So I, I, I get that. It, it's a bit of a it's a funny one, isn't it? Really, that you're gonna because because it because it, it it's gonna be fresh to a lot of people, and that's yeah. that's the thing that's the thing with stuff like like the Beatles. You know, even though we take for granted that everyone has heard this stuff, there are going to be kids out there who haven't heard it to this degree, or that certainly don't know all of it. So, you know, it's it, it's great when these new new generations rediscover stuff like Beatles, like West Side Story. So I'm all for that. You know. Yeah. Here. Here. So. 
Let's move on then and talk about add both our number nines. I'll let you lead on this, Sean, because you chose this one, but I agreed. So I put this in as my number nine as well, because at first I was like, I don't know if I'd put it in, but I was like, oh yeah, I love this. I love this score. So this is the score to Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. The first of a few Marvels on this score. I'll warn everyone, you know, because everyone loves people talking about Marvel, don't they? <laughs> um, <but laughs> there are going to be there are going to be a few. Joel P. West scored this. Why have you put this one in your top ten, Sean? Yeah, I um, I just think it, it, it's really interesting when you get a composer like Joel P. West, with whom I'm not particularly familiar, and and as as he graduates from largely indie dramas into the into fully fledged blockbuster filmmaking, this is the first film of its type that's been tackled by Joel P. West. He's collaborated with Shang Chi director Destin Daniel Cretton on things like Short Term Twelve. Um, but never, never a film of this scale or this type before, and I was really, really impressed. I was, I, I, I firstly, I want to applaud the, the filmmakers for allowing Destin Daniel Cretton to bring along his regular composer, because very often with blockbusters, you get that they're often like designated composers for films of this type. You think of people like Lorne Bell from Ramin Javadi or, or whoever, both of whom we're going to be citing throughout throughout this this, this um, best of 2021 episode. But I like the fact that Joel P. West was allowed to be imported into this. And I thought he did a brilliant job with this. I, I mean, I'm a sucker for big Hollywood roaring um, action drama scores that assimilate the, the sound of the Far East. And we should say it, it, this is a westernised approximation of Far Eastern music, but that doesn't make it any less intoxicating. I thought it was really good. It's a thematic score. There are clear themes for Shang-Chi, um, for his father, the Mandarin, brilliantly played by um, Tony Leung in the in the movie. Um, there's a real lovely attention to detail in the instrumentation. There's lots of use of speciality instruments like the koto um to give it a very very crisp to far eastern resonance but there's also a real mysticism to it as well there are some really really impressive action tracks with you know very impressive brass writing again i I, you know this composer to my knowledge has not done anything like this before on this kind of symphonic scale but it's it's a it's a blockbuster score that's got a narrative to it there are there is a clear progression through the score, and not all Marvel scores have done this. In recent years, they've got better at it in terms of, you know, assuming a thematic identity. I think we've talked about this before. Arguably, the moment where Alan Silvestri was brought in as, as the composer for the for Captain America and then the Avengers, that's arguably the moment where I think the Marvel scores class themselves up. But it's taken a long time for the idea of the Marvel soundtrack to sort of assume this identity of themes motifs clearly articulated ideas breaking those themes and motifs down into fragmentary form and then building them up into full statements at the end of the album or the movie if you will i thought this is a really really impressive piece of work what do you think of it i, I loved it i mean i loved the film as well and I, I, I know we talked yeah about i did as well yeah but i had such a wonderful time watching this film you know, it, it is it isn't the best film of twenty twenty one, but it was my favourite cinema experience of twenty twenty one by far. I just I, I was completely drawn in by it. I thought it was fab, and the score I I think it's got re- a really powerful 
through line of this wonderful melody, the dun, 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 which Powell goes through, and it's it, it, Joel P. West plays with that idea all the way through. At times, he makes it much more of a beat. At times, he makes it romantic. At times, he puts a thundering sort of, you know, almost like R and B style to it. I, I, I love it. I, I think it's it just covers so many different styles and bases. It brings out the action where it needs to. It brings out the uh, unless you say it's a, it is a Western cultural, you know, view of that, and and some people will find it all a little bit cheesy and and simplistic. But and I and I appreciate that. That's fair enough. But I I think in terms of a film carrying you along with with the music, I think this did a fantastic job. Really, I, I think I think there are maybe slightly more, and there aren't they're on this list, but there are slightly more richer Marvel scores this year. But for sheer sort of fun and sweep. Shang Chi is one of the. I think it's one of the best they've 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 done actually in terms of that that kind of consistent, you know, melody and theme. Uh, I, I, they've really nailed one for Shang Chi here, which I thought, which I think, great. Yeah, I I really hope that Joel P West is brought back for the for the sequel, which is you know as we record this is just recently being announced. I mean, I love the romantic, intimate material. There's a lovely use of the the erhu, which I believe yeah. is a Chinese violin, a oh, stringed instrument, not not strictly a violin, but a stringed instrument. It approximates the sound of a violin. It's gorgeous, um, really, really lovely. I mean, it's, that that's an instrument that a lot of Hollywood composers have used. In in order to approximate the the sound of of the Orient before, but it but it's it's a device that always works and it really makes you it gives a sense of empathy for Shang Chi and and his destiny and also his relationship with his father. It's a father son story and it, and it's dramatically interesting and the music makes it all the more so. Yeah, I I was really impressed with this. I don't I haven't seen an awful lot of people talk about the music for Shang Chi, but they they should because yeah. it's, it's superb. I agree. Yeah, hundred percent. Can't agree with enough with that. Absolutely, it, 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 and it's it's a great listen indiv- independently. It really is. It works so well as an entertaining uh, piece of film music. So, yeah, I think he'll be back. I th- I think so. I think usually when they when they when they when it clicks together and Shang Chi did, you know, it was popular with pe- critics. It did well at the box office, you know. So I I think I think they'll retain the same team. I, I or at least fingers crossed. I think they will. So let's move on to the number eights then. We've, you've gone for another Marvel film, haven't you here? So what's your number eight and why have you put it in? So I've selected Eternals by the aforementioned uh, Ramin Javadi. Um, so if we if we said that Shang-Chi was popular with both audiences and critics, Eternals as a film was the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Although sure. I have to say, I'll set the record straight. I didn't hate this film. I, lo- I loved the score. I thought Ramin Javadi's score, the score was probably the best thing about the movie, actually. The film on its own terms, because obviously when you're talking about film music, you have to count the music in within the experience of watching the movie. The movie was fine. It was okay. It's not the worst Marvel movie by any stretch of oh, the imagination. No. It's, it's, it's not, not, is it? Not at all. No, it's just, it's it's yeah. it's okay. It, it's, yeah. There are there are interesting ideas in it that aren't fully realised. It's very diverse. Um, the idea of casting people of different ethnicities. We have a deaf character in it. We have a gay character in it. Again, the ideas are more interesting than the execution, which does ultimately come down to the climactic you know let's do kind of jazz hands and sort of you know fling sort of superpowers <laughs> at people i'm like 
I'm not, it's just I, I, disappointing. I, I, can I, can I, I just really want Jazz Hands Man now, like a superhero. <laughs> like, actual Jazz Hands Man. Hello. The, the, the villain just stands around in confusion, going, what on earth is happening? <laughs> Mind you, that did happen at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy, didn't it? When Chris Pratt's Star-Lord does the dance-off. That's true, distract, actually. That's uh, the closest Ronan. we've got. But I, yeah. I, want, I want Jazz Hands Man, confuses them with his hands and then pulls out a sax and then just baffles them <laughs> with some Miles Air Davis. Sax. Yeah. You know, they, they, yeah. if we can have Polka Dot Man, like in the Suicide Squad, then nothing's <laughs> off the table, Sean, I think. Yeah. I want them to do um, just George Harrison Man. Right, hello, here's George Harrison Man. Right, there's my superpower. The Beatles Get Back is on Disney+, Plus, so there's no reason why they can't amalgamate it with have a, Marvel. Have a crossover. Yeah, you know, yeah. why not? I, I, yeah. would, I wouldn't put anything off the table anymore. <laughs> Give it a crazy things are. I love the fact that we are attempting to defend the integrity of Eternals, but even we've kind of been dragged down the, the, the route of slightly mocking it. You just can't, <laughs> it can't help again. Because it is, it is. I mean, I, I, it, it's like Marvel's sort of take on Prometheus, if you like, that kind of stuff. Now, I, and I love that. I love all that Prometheus Alien Covenant business. It's great. I, I love the music to it. I love the films, etc. But, you know, and Marvel you will never do anything quite that self-serious. You know, because there's even in Eternals, which is more of a serious film, I suppose. But even in that, there is a, le- a level of that Marvel humour. The problem with it, it doesn't work quite as well because it's so broad and and, and powerful in terms of a lot of these themes that it's it's trying to do. And it's a, it, a, by the virtue of that fact, these guys are basically alien gods. It is a little bit more arch, isn't it? So it's harder to do something like Shang Chi, which is much more of a romp, with this. And I think that's why maybe people didn't take to the film i, I don't know are, are they are they talking about the music as much as they should be because i don't know about that either no I, I don't think people have been paying attention to the music in eternals because and this is another thing we've spoken about repeatedly on this podcast uh, when the re- when the reputation of the film is bad um the score tends to be ignored as well you know the score tends to go down with the ship so to speak and given the largely negative reviews that have greeted Eternals well mixed to negative reviews the score the qualities of the score have been subsumed by that negativity and I think it's a real shame um this is Ramin Javadi's first Marvel score since um the very first Iron Man so he was the composer that musically kicked off the MCU back in um, 2008 um, I have mixed feelings about the Iron Man score, but I think Eternals very much plays into the lush, melodic side of Javadi that we heard in the later seasons of Game of Thrones, um, which ironically enough was another project that also went <laughs> it went it went downhill as as the music got better. Which is there's a weird like inversion sometimes, which is you know the quality of the televisual or cinematic product gets worse, but the music gets better. I know this is something we've talked about quite a lot you know the the kind of um, inverse relation to the negative qualities of a movie versus the positive qualities of the music is is very often quite a peculiar thing but you you mentioned i will will disagree on game of thrones on the quality of the show point but that's a different podcast (laughs) (laughs) you do an entire year on that yeah you do an entire year on that yeah, but yeah. In in terms, you mentioned earlier that Eternals have got a problem, which is that it's dealing with characters who are deities, and therefore they are kind of bogged down with this like weighty, portentous gravitas, which means it's harder to humanise them, make them funny and relatable in the manner of Shang Chi. Um, clearly, that celestial 
um, sweeping side of it is what informed Javadi's score um, because it's go- it's gorgeous. It's again like Shang Chi. It's it's thematic. There is a theme for Eternals. I don't think it's as memorable as the one that Joel P. West did for for Shang Chi, but. The incidental music has got some breathtaking choral writing that speaks of the, you know, it speaks of the storied history of the Eternals and their creators, the Celestials and their enemies, the Deviants. You've got an appropriately kind of grandiose quality to the symphonic writing, to the to the mixing to the, of, of the music, to the ambience of the music. Um, there is what what's also becoming evident with these Marvel projects is that the presentation of the music on the album and the presentation of the music in the film is is different. You know, you'll get bits and pieces of the music as heard in the film that won't necessarily appear on the album. Very often, the best bits of music from the film are not designated for the album, which is what's happened with Eternals, which is a slightly peculiar thing. I had this problem with uh, the Black Widow score by Lorne Balfe, which we'll get into imminently. But I think that Ramin Javadi is is a composer on whom I'm somewhat tepid. I've I've got I've got lukewarm feelings towards him, but I think this is one of his best works. It shows that he's got a real gift for melody, and he works very very hard to try and invest director Chloe Zhao's vision in. You know, he tries to import more more feelings of grandiosity and emotional weight into it, and I think Chloe Zhao as the director needs to be applauded for encouraging him to go the extra mile like this. I mean, her previous film, Nomadland, which won all the Oscars, had tracked in sections from Ludovico Einaudi, whereas you know, Eternals has got an organic, original score to it. That I think she has got a musical sense. Whatever faults you, you think that Eternals possesses, I think musically it, it's very well realised, I, I would say. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, th- I think it... You know, I, I did like the film. I did like it. I didn't love it. I did like it. I liked aspects of it. I mean, a lot of people said that it doesn't feel like a Marvel film in uh, in a lot of ways. And I don't know if I like that. <laughs> if I'm honest. Because, because I do. I, I unashamedly really like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what they do from, with most of it. I do. You know, I don't care if that makes me a corporate shill or a, or a populist or whatever. I'm not bothered. I do. I enjoy it. And, and I, think, I think Eternals didn't have that same bounce spring in its step. And I, and I, I think some of the characters have potential to be much more interesting folded into other things than they do in this film. And, and, and I think that's something that might yet happen in future films, but the music I did like, you know, I, I, I did, I don't, I couldn't find anything quite as much of a hook as I did in something like Shang-Chi or even Black Widow, to be honest, later on for me, I can't identify when I think about the score the same kind of through line that really drew me in, in the way that you know Jawadi is great as he proved on Game of Thrones, and it, and he has on Westworld to an extent as well. He is great at at the kind of leitmotif theme for characters. You know, he 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 did it brilliantly on Game of Thrones in many instances, and I couldn't quite find that here. But I think overall, it's a really good piece of work. It's really robust. It has that sense of gravitas to it. I think he's. I think he's. He, he makes sense as a choice. I think for something like this, where it is a little bit more of a of a Marvel film that is about he, more heavenly, cosmic, weightier ideas and people than some of these more you know fun and jaunty sort of superheroes. Although, having said that, he did the first Iron Man film, didn't he? So yeah. it's not to say that he can't just do 
you know, he's just in the, but that was, that was before Game of Thrones. So since then he saw, he sort of, he's sort of been put a little bit more in a box of either historical or, you know, those kind of deep idea kind of, kind of shows and, and films. So no, I, I, I liked it. I liked it. I, I wouldn't have made my top 10, but I wouldn't put it too much lower than the top 10, I would say. Yeah, I think I think the 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 elegiac kind of adagio form of of the eternal score it, it works very well as as musically. I think it, somewhat ironically that it does it further emphasizes this the lethargic weight of of the film, which so many people have, have criticized it for. But I think that in in terms of its compositional maturity, I think it shows that Javadi from my point of view, and I don't want this to sound patronising, he's getting better. He He's doing more and more stuff that I find interesting. And I think given that, you know, he started the MCU with Iron Man, which is essentially like a sort of thrash rock score, and I was never entirely comfortable or satisfied with that, I think that this shows, you know, a, a new level of musical sophistication for him in the MCU, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see whether they do an Eternals 2 or they do... Or Javadi, you know, imprints onto other Marvel things. Uh, absolutely, because I am very curious as to how he might develop some of this stuff. Yeah. So no, no, it's a good, it's a good choice. It is a good choice. So for my number eight, I'm I'm cheating again slightly along the same lines, really, as in very, in very, in very much, very much the same kind of lines as the Beatles get back. I've gone for the music to Last Night in Soho, which is the Edgar Wright film um, that was much anticipated heavily set in the 1960s that is it, it, it's a bit of a sort of giallo inspired uh, horror film about two girls one in the present day one in the past and there is a strange haunting link between them and I, and and there is there is some music in this by Stephen Price who obviously is quite a, a you know a well-known respected British composer but it wasn't really that that, I, that hooked me in, Sean. Along similar lines as with the Get Back music, I felt like one of the things... Last Night in Soho, I think, was a really... For the first hour, it was an absolutely great movie. Like, I, I really think that. I think that for the first hour or so of Last Night in Soho was terrific. It was some of Edgar Wright's best work. And then it falls off a massive cliff with about 40 minutes to go. <laughs> and, and everyone has said this, and, and everyone's saying it. Everyone said this, and everyone's saying it because it's true. He he, he has he sets up this a brilliant, work, twisted inversion of the swinging 60s, and then he tries to actually put a plot in there and resolve it, and he shouldn't have. He should have made it a dream-like, weird, trippy excursion into the 60s and not explain a, a bloody thing of it, but he doesn't. Anyway, that first hour... I think creates the not just visually, but in terms of the 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 kind of music that's that's drip fed into this sixties London, I thought was fantastic. And it goes from everything from there's a bit of the John Barry orchestra in there with Beat Girl. There's uh, a, what what I've realised is a brilliant song that I'd completely forgotten about and I heard years ago. But um, You're My World by Cilla Black, which then Anya Taylor Joy's character reprises in in the the club in london it's a fantastic song and it's got this it's got an amazing 60s soundtrack i mean it, it I, I, I don't i don't think this uh comparison is completely warranted but a lot of people sort of suggest that edgar, edgar Wright is the british tarantino i mean i don't think he is at all but he definitely borrows the idea in this film anyway of of compiling a list of songs 
that fit the period that he's playing in. And there's some great like 60s tunes in here. Things like, there's a ghost in my house. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> if, you li- yeah. if you listen to the lyrics of that song, it's bonkers. But the stuff in there that's a real a real blend. And I and I, I thought it was great. I thought it I thought it was a it really immersed you into a film that it doesn't stick the landing at all, but I I loved how it, it you really really felt like you were in the sixties. I mean one of my favourite shots of the year is when Thomas and McKenzie's character gets to the um the cinema and she sees that massive poster of Thunderball. Yes. Uh, and I love it's a beautiful shot. And, uh, you know, it, it, I, I just, I, I think this film, if only this film had, had managed to keep this going all the way through, it would have been in my top three, I think, of the year. But I don't know what you think about the film and, and the integration of the music, Sean, but I'm guessing you've seen this. Yeah, I, I saw it. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of um, humble brag klaxon alert. I interviewed Edgar Wright about this film. <laughs> <laughs> we do need natural klaxon there, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's one of my filmmaking heroes, and we spoke at length about the, um, the, the, the use of the music and the way that the, the, uh, the songs and the score mix and um, one comes out of the other. For example, Edgar Wright specifically cited the moment where Barry Ryan's Eloise is playing in the club in the sixties. And then out of that comes um, Stephen Price's very, very creepy score. So the idea is he, lo- he, he yeah. said he loves, he loves to sort of layer different layers of music within, uh, within other layers of music, <laughs> which was, which is really fascinating to, to hear. I think Stephen Price's score is pretty, subtle and understated for the most part I mean it clearly builds to some more operatic qualities at the end as and I agree with you the story becomes more overwrought more hysterical and less interesting I totally agree with you that the movie now narr- goes over a cliff narratively speaking um it, it tries to juggle too much but I think that Price's music has got a consistency of tone un- under it which which I think is impressive but I think you know the, the if you're talking about this movie in terms of its music narratively it's made by the needle drops you know by the use of the pop tracks that you've just mentioned obviously we've got Anya Taylor-Joy doing that sensational iteration of Downtown as well which is you know yeah. was used in the trailers that's obviously a big centerpiece in in the in the movie um I think for that reason it, it's very interesting again in the movie rolls out all these 1960s pop culture staples and I I was at the at the end of it I was thinking right it's rolled all that out has it has it actually found anything interesting to say about the 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 rot that's underneath the idea of nostalgia i did speak to edgar wright about this and yeah he said it was all the movie was all about you know picking that apart and the idea that we have you know an idealized vision in our heads of 60s culture and certainly this movie plays into it with the use of the music and you know stephen price's non-diegetic score is about plucking away at that sense of you know that that murky sense of disquiet behind nostalgia um, I, I think I think it's a mi- it's a mixed bag of a movie. I mean, I was absolutely privileged to be able to talk to Edgar Wright about it. I don't necessarily think it's his best work. I think the score is is discreet. I think there are very very striking uses of of sixties um, pop music which do tend to to rule the day. But an interesting choice. Yeah, I think it's an interesting choice for a top ten. It, it wouldn't have been one that I would have picked, but I, but I think you know it's, it's all about variety, isn't it? At, at the end of the day 
I was going to say, when, when you say, it's an interesting choice. If very British problems got a hold of that, they translate that to, what the fuck did you put that in there for? <laughs> no, it's, 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 very, it's a very musically interesting um, film. It's just, I think, for me, it's because the film narratively doesn't live up to its potential... I um you know I yeah. I struggle to remember the application of the score within that that's in the non-diegetic score specifically um but but well, it's right. much more in that first hour you yes. know than 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 that last 40 minutes that just doesn't work you know and and it's the it's the creation of that world that's far better than the the resolution of that world really which is which is a shame because because I do agree in that it ends up being a real mixed bag of a film, a film that I really want to love a lot more than I do, but it, it you just can't escape the fact it just completely lets itself down. And it's a real shame. It is a real shame um, because I, I do think the first hour is some of the best stuff he's ever done. Clearly, the way Edgar Wright uses music um, is is very diverse. I mean, the way he he uses um, needle drops. Um, for example, you think of Don't Stop Me Now in, in Shaun of the Dead, and then you juxtapose that with, you know, with David Arnold's score uh, for Hot Fuzz, which I think is brilliant, which, you know, David Arnold, David Arnold's pumped up sort of testosterone-laden score for Hot Fuzz makes the film funnier because because the music is so exciting, it accentuates the absurdity of what happens what happens when all this action mayhem goes down in this sleepy West Country village. I mean, I, Last Night in Soho is a weird one because... It's it's a pretty straight laced movie. There isn't a lot, there isn't really any humour in it because the the subject matter doesn't lend itself to that. It's not as playful as as Edgar Wright's other movies, and therefore I don't you don't really have that sense of irony or dark humour in the music. It's more straightforward in terms of its dramatic application. But I think I think do think it's it's the the, the music is broadly effective. Yeah, yeah. Again, I'm I, I think that's probably my last proper cheat really <laughs> this podcast yeah i will get back onto more you know traditional music i wouldn't say that your number seven is particularly traditional interestingly enough even though it, uh, this is a very interesting choice uh what have you gone for for your number seven sean so i've gone for johnny greenwood's score for spencer which is the you know the princess diana biopic starring Kristen stewart for which she is almost certainly going to be oscar nominated and as we record this the Oscar nominations haven't been announced. I think she's almost certainly a, a lock for a nomination, if not a win. Um, you know, the movie is 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 set over a very condensed time frame, Christmas 1991 at Sandringham, Sandringham Palace, where, you know, Diana's marriage to Prince Charles, played by Jack Folding, and the movie is falling apart in full view of the media. She's viewed with icy, not quite contempt, but, by by the royal family but she's viewed with a sense of coldness by the royal family who are largely tangential in the narrative they're 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 figures who are largely on on the on the margins and it's more about putting you in in diana's head in this very claustrophobic hermetically sealed environment and that's where johnny greenwood's score um steps in um he's working with director pablo lorraine who made um jackie which was scored by mika levy um, I mean, Johnny Greenwood has had, had a sensational year. I know we've got another yeah. score of his coming up uh, on on this on this list. I won't give away what it is, but he's also had um, uh, Licorice Pizza score for Licorice Pizza, which is the new Paul oh, Thomas Anderson movie. I haven't heard that yet. Mm. I, I've heard extracts of it, and it's lovely. Again, it's it's very it's very gentle and very bucolic. Complete opposite to Spencer, which is you know really fascinatingly experimental, which moves from these stately 
string passages which capture you know the royal edifice you know the 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 royal um you know the royal embodiment if you will and then it moves from that to these dysrhythmic jazz sections which really do capture the 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 emotional turmoil of what's going on inside diana spencer's head as she's struggling with her her bulimia she's struggling with you know the, the perception of her by the royal family the fact that the the media are outside the walls of Sandringham and she has to have the curtains drawn because, you know, long lens paparazzi will get shots of her, which turns out to be a real bone of contention narratively throughout the movie. All of the, these very, very disparate musical styles do really reinforce the sense that this is a psychological horror movie as as much as anything else. And, I mean, Johnny Greenwood has come on such leaps and bounds. I mean, bearing in mind it was only 2007, 2008 that he burst onto the scoring scene with There Will Be Blood, which was the, the other Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I mean, it's really exciting to see how he's come from his position in Radiohead to, you know, one of the sort of modern classical artists par excellence. I mean, it's it's really remarkable and I think the Spencer score is very, very hard to listen to on its own terms as an album. Again, it works brilliantly within the context of the movie, which is, again, the primary role of any film score at the end of the day. Um, If a film score can illuminate what's going on beyond visual imagery, then the score has done a brilliant job, and I think he does it magnificently in this. You've you've hit the nail on the head, I think, when you said that this is a classic example of of a score that is really difficult to listen to. In, in without the film, I, I I when I when I did and I saw the film and I did think it worked really well. I didn't love the film. I thought the film was good. Kristen Stewart particularly is excellent. And to be fair, if she won an Oscar, I wouldn't begrudge her that at all because I thought she was great. Yeah. And you know she banishes the the the, uh, the nightmare of Naomi Watts <laughs> far into the background. <laughs> what what uh, when she goes? Uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't realise you could make hamburgers. It's like, well, what? Like, what was? What are you talking about? <laughs> that is an actual yeah. quote from the film. People, that is an actual. Yeah. Quote. I haven't just thought of that. <laughs> no, no, that's probably not even the most off the wall one either. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Spencer's definitely a better film than that. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't love it as much as I loved Jackie, and I thought Jackie was a, a brilliant movie, and that was my film of the year that year, I think. And the score by Michael Levy, I was able to listen to independently a little bit more, and I and I and I got that. Whereas with Spencer, I think it works great with the film. I think you're right in that it really creates an unsettling. I mean, I, I did laugh when I saw the trailer for Spencer because there was a lot of Kristen Stewart just gazing into the camera, going. <sighs> You know, yeah. like that. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of oh, breathing. And I thought, oh, is it going to be one of those films where it's just a lot of Kristen Stewart doing Diana? You know, but it, yeah, was, it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't just that. Um, and But it, it, the film helps you understand the real spiral of sort of existential despair that you see Diana go through in this weekend, which is what it focuses on. So it works very well in the movie, but I, co- I couldn't listen to this individual. I was like, I just can't. This isn't, this isn't enjoyable, really, as an independent thing. So... I found the other score that Johnny Greenwood did that we'll talk about in the in part two much more melodic to listen to individually. So, but that's okay. It does. They don't always have to be like that. It, it, this works very well for the context it's supposed to be in. I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the best film scores ever written are deeply unpleasant. You think of Jerry Goldsmith's Planet of the Apes. It's one I would very, very rarely fire up because it is so, you know, it takes its cue from Stravinsky. It's dysrhythmic, it's atonal, it's harsh, but it works brilliantly. It's it's a brilliant score. One doesn't have to 
it doesn't have to be an easy experience in order to qualify as a great score. And a lot of Johnny Greenwood's um, material for films has been very challenging. But although one of my favourites of his has been for another Paul Thomas Anderson film, uh, Phantom Thread, which was a beautiful... Oh, yeah. Just gorgeous. gorgeous. Very stately, yeah. very English. There are elements of that in the Spencer score. <clears throat> it, it is a yeah. self-con- it's a self-conscious score because it's a self-conscious movie. Kristen Stewart's performance is self-conscious. She's playing Diana... She's playing Diana as Diana is herself putting on a front for the media and for the royal family and therefore the quality, the outsized qualities of Johnny Greenwood's score in Spencer make dramatic sense for the movie. That That's why it's scored like this. It's deliberately like overcranked, you know, quite in your face again with those very, very harsh, uncomfortable jazz interludes at points. Really, really great score. And I, I'm really excited to see Johnny Greenwood's development as a, as a film composer. I think it's really thrilling. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. Because he's already got some really good things under under his belt. Um, so my number seven, I've gone for one that I talked about earlier in the year, which is a TV show. Well, I think it might be the only TV show on this list actually this year. But I've gone for the first uh, of two Nicholas Brutel scores on this this list. The Underground Railroad, which is Barry Jenkins' sumptuous 10-part Amazon series adapting Colson Whitehead's brilliant novel about a literal underground slave railroad uh, escaping masters, their evil masters in the 19th century. And I haven't actually finished the series yet because it's it it's it's very slow, it's very it's very bleak at times, it's very powerful, but it's beautiful. I mean, it is one of the most beautiful things that's been put on film this year if not longer i mean it looks incredible and the music is gorgeous absolutely it it varies from really sweet and hopeful and melodic to nightmarish and brutal and brooding and dark and i think and brutal i mean i'm so impressed by this guy Uh, this guy is rapidly becoming one of my favorite composers because he, he, he can turn his hand to a lot of things within a certain... He, he, he's developing that classic thing of, I can tell a Nicholas Brutel score now. I'm starting to see it now when, when, you see, when, you see, when you hear music, even though he can do different things. He's not 100% there yet like some of the other composers we talk about, but I'm definitely feeling like there is a Brutel sound now that is becoming clearer to me. And I, and I think he's, he does two very different scores on this list that we're going to talk about generally, but they're both definably something that he's done and and i i loved this i thought it was i thought it was absolutely beautiful and arresting and very much i think fits what you see on screen yeah i i haven't watched the series um i've listened to excerpts of the score i, I have read the book of this and the book is sensational it's one of the one of the best books i read in 2021 i also read colson whitehead's um, another novel from Colson Whitehead in 2021 called Sag Harbour, which is completely different from the Underground Railroad. It's like an autobiographical coming-of-age story set in Long Island, which is really sweet and really charming. He's obviously a great writer. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, I, I, I don't need to qualify that. Um, but, I mean, the, Nicholas Patel, you're right, has got this almost like the Alexandre Desplat sense of melody, like that very metronomic, almost sort of intellectual a very precise sense of melody, but he mixes it with these music concrete sounds, like the idea of of music as sound, sound as music. And you've got these very, very peculiar elements in the Underground Railroad score. I think the idea of this is that he wants to get a sense of 
literally going underground through the music didn't he the idea that he uses these very strange like acoustic elements to get a sense of people going literally and figuratively going underground in order in order to to start a new life for themselves mixed in with these very elegiac tragic interludes that capture life as a 19th century slave it's i mean he's a he's a really really great Really, really interesting composer. I'm surprised that you, I mean, I don't know whether it's because you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, but I was surprised that Succession wasn't on here. That that Nicholas Bratel has also scored again. I'm not familiar with it, and I'm not familiar with his score for that. I mean, I don't know if you are. Well, yeah. Oh God, yeah. I mean, I I love Succession. It's one of my favourite. Yeah, I think it was number three on my list of top ten TV shows this year, and the first two weren't dramas. So yeah, that's how good it <laughs> yeah. was. Uh, or maybe the first one was drama. Anyway, but it, uh, either way. Yeah, Successions, I mean, bloody hell, Sean, you would love that show. I mean, please, please watch it. It is fantastic. You would love the characters in that. And his, his music for that is great. Yeah, it really is great. I think it, it'd be very easy to put Succession on a list like this, but I, 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 and I feel like it will potentially go down as a great set of music, but it's, it is quite similar quite often, I think. You know, and, and it's, it's fantastic, but it, it repeats a lot of the same things in that. For me, so I don't know in terms of variety if it's quite on a par with what you get in the Underground Railroad or what you get in the other choice, which we'll reveal later. But um, but it's still great, yeah. He, he's he's just really good, you know. He, he's he's really good even in films that aren't good, like the the King, the um, yeah, the medieval film it's... with Timothy Chalamet, which was pretty bobbins, but his score was great for that. So yeah, he's really exciting me as a composer. So I'm I'm you know I, more fr- more from him will be will be fantastic, and we will have more from him soon. So uh, we'll, yeah. we'll come back to this. Yeah, your number six, Sean, was a late entry, a swapsy, and um, I I, th- I think you I think you've chosen well here. What what's your number six? It's promising young woman by Anthony Willis, which is a the movie itself directed by Emerald. Fennel and starring Kerry Mulligan got a lot of attention but I don't think the score got an awful lot of attention but I think the score is very very important for the impact of the movie so just to remind people because it came out this was one of those movies it kind of got caught up in the sort of our movies out a movies not out kind of debacle in, in like the sort of first four months of, 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 the, of the year in the UK and it might have actually slipped a lot of people's attention though I think it did win an Oscar didn't it for best original screenplay I think I I'm, think it won for screenplay yeah, yeah. screenplay yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very impressive very provocative deliberately uncomfortable mordantly funny movie in which Carrie Mulligan plays um, a woman who um entraps these creepy lascivious men who see her in a nightclub apparently drunk they then attempt to pick her up she then reveals that she's not drunk and that she's she's essentially entrapped them and she's then puts them on the spot it's like right what 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 are your intentions what did you hope to get away with within this particular context but then she meets a character played by Bo Burnham who is a doctor who you know might might potentially um, sort of help resolve her inner anger and her inner rage because there is a tragedy in her past. There is a reason why she is behaving like this in in nightclubs. That you know there, there, there's there's a backstory and you think okay maybe this character from Bo Burnham might be the redemptive salve in all this. And then the 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 drama then takes several twists and turns. I won't reveal what it is, but it 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 really does put 
relationships and basic human behavior under the microscope in very very sort of brutal analytical ways and Kerry Mulligan is is sensational in in the movie and I think the score is has been a very very overlooked part of this because the movie has got almost in, in many ways kind of like a heightened like operatic sense about it. it's it's a movie that is about how people you know hu- human nature is fundamentally absurd and perverse and flawed and i think anthony willis's score is really good for how it relies on the string section in particular to conjure that sense of you know strings are often compared to the register of, of the human voice and you've got strings being used in a multitude of different ways in this in a in a kind of giallo thriller-esque kind of way because there are you know there are very very tense interludes in the movie sort of operatically kind of suspenseful but then there there is also a sense of tragedy with relation to Kerry Mulligan's character's backstory and the strings in for that side of it get the empathy for for her and I think that it's it's a very it's a very very interesting way of how a film score can be both ironic and sympathetic at the same time because the movie has got itself has got a very complicated texture to it it's designed to leave you with a lot of questions and the score kind of has you thinking throughout okay is the score being sincere in its intentions or is it being kind of ironically darkly funny its intentions the the answer is it's doing both which i think is a very very hard thing to get right i mean anthony willis is not a composer with whom i'm familiar but wow i mean for, i mean full credit to emerald fennel for obviously sitting down and working with him to conjure a score that adds to the complexity of of the film uh, i thought really 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 great i mean anyone who is interested in kind of overlooked film scores i'd say go go and check this one out because it's it's, it's it's really something yeah agreed agreed i mean I, I thought the film was a masterpiece i really did i absolutely fell head over heels for that movie I thought it was amazing, and Kerry Mulligan in that is just brilliant, it's like truly brilliant performance. And I, I, I love, I love the score. I think the score is great. I think you're, I can't sum it up any better than you have. I think that you're absolutely right about that sense of balanced uh, between irony and sincerity, and uh, it, it is uh, by degrees, you know, really sinister and a bit twisted, and and it, it's. It's very good. It is very very good, and it fits that film like a glove. I think so. You know, hopefully. Yeah, I haven't really come across Anthony Anthony Willis either before, so hopefully there's a bit more for him off the back of this. Given how popular this, you know, well how successful this film was in terms of you know critically being critically acclaimed, you know, hopefully more will come off the back of this for him. But yeah, it's a it's a great choice. It's a film I'm really looking forward to going back and watching again, to be honest, because I, I like I say, absolutely loved it to bits. So. We've got one more before we wrap up for this first part. Uh, we're going to go back to Marvel, and I'm talking about Black Widow by Lorne Balf, which is the, uh, the the first Marvel movie since Avengers Endgame to come out. So it was delayed by a year, anticipated, and it, it, we talked about it a bit more in length, and we, there was a, a podcast on we made this, um, as there have been for all of these, actually, all of these Marvel shows on Podcast 616, our other show, about Eternals, Shang-Chi, and I did one about Black Widow. And it's a it's a funny film, really. Uh, it, it, the film is a bit mixed, a bit of a mixed bag in terms of focusing on a character who's technically dead, <laughs> which is really yeah. weird. Um, yeah. But um, I thought the score was really good. You know, I mean, Lorne Balfe is one of those composers who in the last few years has really emerged as someone doing great work. 
whether it's on something, whether it's on content that's a bit rubbish, like his dark materials, which I don't like at all. The the show, <laughs> um, I just don't. I think the show's crap, and the books are great, but the show's rubbish. And uh, whereas Mission Impossible Fallout, I think is one of the best films of the last decade in terms of that genre. And his work on that, I loved to pieces. So I think I think he's great. I think he's really doing great work, and he's quite varied. And I think with Black Widow, he manages to bring out that that sense of not just action and weight, but also he taps a very Russian stylistic theme into you know with with quite with a, a deep voiced choir, you know, in there and and just bringing out a, a real melody for for that for Natasha Romanoff that hasn't been there before one that I don't know if he's going to be able to carry over into whatever happens with Florence Pugh's successor character or anything like that it might be a one and done in terms of using these themes but I this but I think this this isn't quite my favorite Marvel score of the year there is one more in part two that I think we both loved more but this I thought was excellent really through throughout better than the movie i would say definitely yeah i think it's the best part of the film i think by far i had very very mixed feelings on the movie but i i really like the way that director kate shortland encouraged lawn balf to really think thematically again you mentioned the slavic choir there there is real emotional weight with natasha's lullaby which is among the most beautiful things that's ever been composed for a marvel film um really 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 great again it is a shame that you know owing to the quirk of the marvel chronology this is the only standalone black widow movie we're likely to get and therefore it's not clear whether any thematic musical continuity is going to carry over to any other movies although as you rightly said you know florence Pugh's character elena maybe she'll musically pick up the baton but you know musical continuity in marvel movies is something about which we've talked an awful <laughs> lot yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah how do we how would we describe that as maybe mixed <laughs> Yeah, uh, charitable. That's the way I'm putting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I, I'm I'm really impressed with Lorne Balfe's work on this. Um, I think I've had a problem with his music in the past, which is that it, 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 he came out of the Hans Zimmer stable, um, and a lot of his past scores, I think, have felt like diet Hans Zimmer. And I think that he's really found his own voice in recent years. I love what he did with his Dark Materials. Um, I I really like what he did on this, uh, on, on Black Widow. I think that anyone who can conjure a sense of, you know, um, or for a movie in which Ray Winston sounds like St. Petersburg by way of Peckham is is, <laughs> is, is quite amazing. And and that the, here's the impression klaxon that on the... <laughs> what does well, he sound people... like? Some people did enjoy my my Drakov impression last time, so let me try and bust this out a second time. So it was a bit more like he starts like that, and then he goes into that talking about the Black Widows, and then he's a bit more like let's go down the farm and have a. He's brilliantly all over the place. Right, Natasha, should we go down oh. and exit and have a pint? <laughs> Natasha, I'll have a pint of best, please. Down the... Yeah, I know. It is. It's brilliant. Like it is. It is. It really is. Like yeah, rush uh, Moscow via. Yeah, only falls and horses. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, it's not too expected. Go, you plonker. You plonker. You plonker, Natasha. It's great. It, 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 that that's it. That is great. But no, that the. the um, yeah, the score the score's a winner. The score's a winner for a film that isn't so much. But you know, 
but yeah, we've got one more Marvel to come in uh, in part two, which uh, we're going to take a uh, we're going to hit the pause button, and then we're going to come back next week for our, our second part um, of this top ten. So uh, we'll 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 say we'll say a brief goodbye, Sean, because um, this is, this is not the end. This is a to, a big smashing to be continued on the end credits here. Because so, we've um, got a lot to talk about. There's a lot to sum up. <laughs> over the, we which do. Is we kind do. of funny, given that nothing was happening between like January and kind of early May 2021. We've got a lot to catch up with. It's great. It's all been in the last six months. So, yeah, um, yeah there's some cracking stuff to come in part two. So stay tuned. Join us again uh, next time um, for our five down to one of the best scores of 2021. So, uh, yeah, uh, I've been your host, Tony Black. And I've been Sean Wilson. And we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network between the notes, so we'll uh, we'll give you a taste of what else has been happening on the network before we go. But stay safe and well until we see you next time discussing the music of film and sometimes a bit of TV on Between the Notes. Elsewhere on We Made This. Shucky Vision. The next poll is a little bit more interesting. It was Survive or Die Again with the adult characters. And the characters were Logan, Bree, Michelle, and Detective Evans. And the Chucky Vision listeners predicted that Detective Evans would survive the week before she died on the show. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. that uh, <laughs> We made that poll. Well, I was going to say premature. We made that poll probably at the perfect time. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and... Um, they also predicted that the character that would die would be Michelle. And looking at the characters, Michelle is the only one of the four that actually survives. Free with this month's issue. I was looking at what the point of the band name was, because obviously Black Country being sort of like about a mile away from where I am right now. Yeah. Black Country, New Road, they have said it's a metaphor for a good way out of a bad place so fuck you <laughs> not going to endear themselves to many midlanders with that uh you know dudley zoo and wolverhampton civic hall are fucking ace <laughs> yep both of those places <laughs> well done colin yeah successfully defended yourself with two locations i have all right west midland safari park pretty cool as well yeah yeah <laughs> Frame to frame. This episode yeah. was our Christmas horror film episode. Yeah. Now you mention Gremlins. Whoa. Where was that a week ago? Well, I mean, what can I say? <laughs> I um, mean, genuinely, this is. Uh, so you this should, is. You, should, you really, you should have consulted the ghost of Christmas yet to come, and you would have been able to see this situation happening before it did. So this just... is episode eighty-one of the podcast. Right, and I will flat out say to you now: this is the worst film I've watched for this podcast. It is worse Blimey. than Sextet. It is worse than Cats. I just hated everything. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at Seano22. 
You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. Thank you.